All right, everybody. So we have Gabrielle Fundera with us today. She has a PhD in skeletal muscle physiology and biochemistry, and you focus kind of on the role of gut health, right, and how that affects metabolism. Mm-hmm. That's right. And she also works for Renaissance Periodization. And what do you do there? I'm a nutrition consultant there. So primarily, um, I, I've got a couple people that I've done, you know, training with as well, but primarily nutrition for anyone from just recreational exercisers to people who are competitive athletes. Awesome. And uh, today you said the charity wanted my donation to go towards would be Fur Kids. So could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so Fur Kids is located here in Atlanta, and it is uh, it runs like really a huge system of no-kill animal shelters and also helps cats with FIV. Um, so I myself have three rescue dogs and two rescue cats, so um, I just really love animals, and, and I love um, you know helping that community, especially with a no-kill shelter, because that is a huge commitment, um, you know, to, to helping those animals for the duration of their lives, and especially, you know, animals that come in um, with old age or chronic disease and things like that, oftentimes they're going to be euthanized, and, you know, this just really gives them a chance at a really good life. Awesome. Yeah, we actually just had um, Dr. Scott Stevenson also suggested an animal shelter, so I think it's great. And uh, you, you have an MMA background, right, or some fighting background? I had a, yeah, I had a short stint doing some Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, that was back in 2014. Okay. And I uh, did a competition. It was a lot of fun. And I trained super, super hard for probably about eight months. Uh, but I kept dislocating my shoulder. So I have Ooh, hypermobility okay. in both. Yeah, I have hypermobility. And so, like, both shoulders are just kind of, like, held together by wet spaghetti noodles. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can't lift if, you know, I'm recovering from shoulder dislocation. Um, and then the strength coach that I was working with was like, you should really do bodybuilding, like just try it. And so after that, I, I transitioned and did a women's physique for a while there and then um, took some time off and then, you know, switched over to powerlifting. So awesome. I just spend a little time with everything. Did you catch the fight this past weekend? I didn't, but I really? got the recap. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I um I was pretty excited to hear that. I mean, I don't want you know no hate on McGregor fans or whatnot, but like um I watched both of his fights with Nate Diaz, and mm-hmm. so I'm more of a whoever is fighting Connor like more of his fan. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's pretty interesting to see that, and then all of the you know the the turmoil and controversy over the big brawl that happened afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, I didn't want to stay up that late. I was shockingly able to avoid spoilers and pull up a video of the fight Sunday morning. So I was just like, my heart rate, like watching it was like, oh, damn, it was, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I hadn't even, like, I wasn't able to get any of it. I was been just working and prepping for this seminar coming up, and my boyfriend came home and told me about it, and I was like, oh, like, how do you lose? And he said, rear naked choke, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think he, uh, he would have let go of that ref and ripped his hands off. That looked pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so going a little more into your specialty here, um, nowadays everybody talks about leaky gut, and everybody seems to have a leaky gut. Uh, so specifically, what do we mean, and are we actually seeing more cases of that, or are people just talking about it more? Um, well, you know, just like when, as our ability to sort of diagnose and identify um, disease states and pathology that develops over time, we're going to see an increase in cases. That being said, um, do we actually have increased leaky gut? That's hard to say. A lot of people are self-diagnosing or assuming that other maladies are due to leaky gut. We can identify markers of increased gut permeability, um, and we can measure it indirectly in, in a clinical setting. But just to say, you know, oh, I have eczema, so I must have leaky gut, or I have gastric upset, so I have leaky gut. That's not a way to actually identify the presence of leaky gut. And what leaky gut refers to, this is a phrase that was coined some years ago um, by Gummison, who's a, one of the researchers in the field. So, um, you know, at one point, I think it was more of a legitimate term, and it's been sort of abused, but it really refers to increased permeability or increased leakage or movement of substances from inside the lumen of the intestine into circulation. So the uh, the 
small large intestine are lined with these sort of um, rectangular cylindrical uh, epithelial cells. And these are our absorptive cells. They do other things too, aside from absorbing things, but basically that serves as um, sort of a barrier because even though people think like the, you know, our, the inside of our stomachs and intestines are inside the body, technically that's actually external to the body. And right. so these cells express immune receptors that um, help fend off pathogens because that's external to the body. You can think of it sort of like, I've called it like a poopy moat <laughs> before, like around a castle. Um, so these cells are the wall of that castle and they're held together by tight junction proteins. And ideally, you want them to be really tight together so that you don't have um, movement of potentially pathogenic substances, you know, uh, between those cells and into circulation or into the um, connective tissue that supports those cells. So if you have a leaky gut, or I like to use the term intestinal permeability because I think it just sounds a little bit more legitimate. Yeah. Um, if you have intestinal permeability, then what we really, that's been characterized mostly by leakage of lipopolysaccharide or LPS, which is a toxin that comes from the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria, so specific bacteria that are going to be found in the gut. Um, that can then bind to immune receptors and cause an inflammatory response. And those immune receptors are expressed on all sorts of different tissues. So you can find them on skeletal muscle, and that was something that we had looked at um, when I was doing my PhD, was, was, and that was really how I got into, you know, what's going on in the gut, because we were dosing mice with LPS, and I wanted to know, um, you know, why do I have to get up so early in the morning and get mice with LPS? Um, because it causes an inflammatory cascade, and where does it come from? It comes from the gut, and then I started to question, well, what, what is going on in the gut then that's leading people with obesity or type 2 diabetes or, eating, or people who are eating a high-fat diet to have increased LPS leakage and then increased inflammatory tones? Okay. That's, that's um, gut. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned, you know, with the high-fat diet, and um, I know that we've seen that higher-fat diets do lead to higher levels of LPS. Um, is that, ex like, I mean, usually, and you've mentioned this before, how high fat is usually also high carbs and high sugar. Um, so what about when it's just high fat, like a ketogenic diet, or even maybe not specifically ketogenic, but a lower carb, high fat diet? Do we still see that same LPS? So we can induce um, low-grade metabolic endotoxemia by feeding people um, just basically heavy cream. So... Yeah, you can still see leakage with just high fat and lower carbohydrate. Um, that being said, that hasn't been replicated quite as much as when we're using a model of a westernized diet. So in rodent models, we usually, when we say a high fat diet, we mean anywhere from about 40 to 60% calories coming from fat. And a large portion of those are usually from saturated fat as well. And then we also have the addition of uh, refined carbohydrates. So usually, you know, the, the carbohydrates in these diets are coming from, like, sucrose. So you could look at it like we're feeding these mice kind of sugar cookie dough um, mm -hmm. to, to mimic that westernized standard American diet. Um, now, there have been some studies in humans looking at a ketogenic diet and even a ketogenic diet with caloric restriction. And we do see a decrease in um, fecal diversity, fecal microbial diversity. That may not be, um, and I've talked about this before in, in, a, in a recent podcast too, that it may not be a, um, something that we can then extrapolate exactly to what's going on in the gut because the fecal biome is actually very different from the gut biome. So in order to see what's going on in the gut, you really have to go and look in the gut. And that's really hard to do with humans. Um, it's very invasive. You know, you're looking at, you know, an, an endoscopy or colonoscopy to try and scrape out some of the um, mucosal lining and get into you know, the actual luminal content. So we can't, you know, definitively say that what is happening in the feces is representative of what's happening in the gut. Um, so just a caveat there. Um, 
So, and, and then in some rodent studies that have used um, a westernized diet, but with caloric restriction uh, to match those mice that were exercised, they didn't see quite the same deleterious effects that we see in mice that are fed a westernized diet at libido, meaning they can eat as much as they want. So it may not necessarily be just the dietary fat alone, but, you know, the dietary fat along with obesity and or right. a sedentary lifestyle. Um, you know, and I, like I, I've said this many times, I've, I'm not a dogmatic person. So aside from basically, you know, supporting the idea of eating a lot of plants, um, you know, I think that if a person did a ketogenic diet that was higher in fat, you know, perhaps the addition of plenty of sources of fiber could help reduce the negative effects because it, it really looks like dietary fiber is one of the deciding factors in, mm. in the profile of gut, uh, of gut bacteria that we see, um, and dietary protein as well. But, um, you know, it's, it's difficult because the way that we study the biome, is, is, it varies from, from study to study. You know, how deeply are we um, uh, sampling these fecal samples and what methods are we used to, using to identify what bacteria are present, and then are we looking at it just from a, a form standpoint, who's there versus a function standpoint, what are mm -hmm. we doing? Um, and I think we're moving more towards functionality, which is great, but, you know, thus far, it's been a lot of just, okay, knock on the door, who's there, all right, oh, we've got a lot right. of privatella, and then, you know, it's open also to just a debate of what is considered a beneficial versus harmful bacteria. So I've seen examples where um, people cite, you know, a, a reduction in lactobacillus is good or a reduction in lactospiraceae is good. And then other studies would say that that's bad because those are butyrate producers. So, so butyrate is considered to be beneficial. So um, it, even though, you know, we can, we certainly know that leakage of LPS into circulation can be problematic and, and causes inflammation, um, you know, I don't think we can definitively say that, like, this certain diet is going to cause that and be much worse. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there it's it's just there are so many caveats to this because it's like we really don't know that well. So I don't want, you know, to it to be a concern about eating a high fat diet if it's, you know, very nutrient dense might not be so much of a problem. And just realizing that, what, like you said, when we talk about high fat diet and research, it's usually mimicking a westernized high fat diet that comes with plenty of refined carbohydrates because i do i get that question a lot but people are like well what if i'm eating you know a lot of salmon and avocado and things like that mm -hmm. that being said most people are not eating those those types of foods you know right. and, and you can even see when people decide to do um you know a ketogenic diet you know sometimes their their version may not be very nutrient dense if mm -hmm. they're you know relying on a lot of um, kind of, I don't want to demonize, you know, fast food that can fit into a diet, but, you know, eating a bunless cheeseburger is probably not the most right. prudent option if it's going to be a staple of your diet. Sure, sure. Um, and as far as the fiber adding to the microbiome or like the diversity, have you seen, I mean, almost everybody seems to agree that high amounts of fruits and vegetables is a good thing. Um, there is a small camp that doesn't really follow that. And, I'm, and like, of course, people talk about the, con the carnivore diet now. Um, yeah. But even before all that, I've seen people talk about, and like, I mean, even a few doctors say how, you know, when you're looking at lectins and other things like that, they were, they're in plants to protect them from being eaten and that they are irritants then to some people. And you talk about people saying lectin sensitivity and things like that. Any thoughts on that? Um, there have been some in vitro studies that have shown um, increased immune activity in response to some of these compounds. Um, so one one example would be in wheat. Um, there's a, a specific uh, a trypsinase, I think, that you know may cause an immune response, and, and there there's a theory that maybe that's causing people's issues rather than gluten. You know, if gluten sensitivity exists. Um, so I think the, the, we have to be cautious though about how we extrapolate that to 
a human model into the actual gut because it's very different if we're looking at you know just intestinal cells in a petri dish versus um, the intestinal cells in the ecosystem of the human microbiome. Um, so that so so taking that into consideration, the other thing is um, most of this can be reduced just by properly processing these foods. So if you are thoroughly cooking the beans, if you are, um, you know, even some people like are sprouting them and things like that, but thoroughly cooking them, or thoroughly soaking them beforehand, that usually reduces any sort of issues that you might have from some of those, you know, anti-nutrients. And um, the, the actual, like, if you look into, you know, cases of people who've had issues from these, it's usually because they're, like, subsisting entirely on lentils. Right, you know, right. And so I think people really, it, it's kind of funny because it's like, it's, it's not terribly complicated to eat a nutritious diet. And, right. you know, there's so much evidence to say, like, eat a plant-centric diet, eat plenty of vegetables and fruits and whole grains. Um, but it's kind of sexier to say, like, oh, there's danger in that, and, you know, right. maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe that's causing you to not be able to lose weight, because we kind of want to find these reasons for why it's difficult to lose weight. It's mm -hmm. difficult to lose weight because we have evolved to maintain as much body fat as possible, just in case there's a famine. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it is. It's a challenge to lose weight, and it's supposed to be. Um, and it's probably not because you're eating, you know, too many <laughs> fruits and vegetables. You know, when you say that out loud, like, oh, clearly my diet is too high in vegetables. No, right, right. You know? <laughs> not a lot of logic there. Um, so that being said, you, you know, there are um, specific fibers that are found in fruits, vegetables, dairy, um, that are readily fermentable. And in some cases, they can be fermented to the point that it causes a lot of gas and bloating. Um, the buildup of gas can actually mess with transit time, so you may have constipation. And in that case, then it's prudent to just limit those fruits and vegetables and dairy products that would contain those fibers that cause those issues. And this is something that I've touched on quite a lot, the low FODMAP diet. Um, I've actually recommended it for clients, um, not, you know, all, not across the board, but I've had some people come to me that have really, really severe bloating. And it's just a, it's just a well-organized elimination diet that allows you to systematically remove foods that are known to be um, triggers for these issues and then gradually introduce them back in. So you don't want to live on that type of restrictive diet forever. You want to get an idea of what exactly it is that's causing you to have those issues. Um, and then, you know, eat everything else except those things. So, like, you can still have a really varied nutritious diet if you can't, for example, eat, like, spinach and asparagus. Right. And, you know, so that's okay. Um, so, yeah, it's not to say that, you know, people won't have issues from some of these foods. They certainly can. But it's probably not so much... Um, you know, those, those anti-nutrients, it's probably just fiber being fermented. Do you see an, a health problem when that happens, or is it just more discomfort when people are having, you know, the high FODMAP foods? Um, if, they, if it's causing someone to have, well, it, it certainly, you know, quality of life is a, is a health issue. So mm -hmm. if they are feeling that, you know, they can't exercise, um, or, you know, have one that couldn't use their, their belt like while lifting. It was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, feeling very self-conscious, feeling uncomfortable. So even just from a quality of life standpoint, I would say it's a health issue just psychologically. In terms of physiologically, um, more on the side of, you know, if a person is having chronic diarrhea from, mm -hmm. from, those, from those foods, um, you have a, a few different issues and you're not having sufficient time to absorb and utilize the nutrients from your food. Your bacteria likewise won't have quite as much time to utilize nutrients from that food. So it may um, predispose you to have, you know, the, the growth of, of more rapid bacterial growers. So you could have, uh, you know, maybe blooms of more pathogenic bacteria because you have a dysbiosis there that's basically, um, a non-beneficial profile of gut bacteria. Okay. Just like we can have dyslipidemia, you can have dysbiosis. 
Right. Um, so that could be an issue. Also, obviously, dehydration would be a concern there as well. So, um, and, you know, if it's constipation, that can lead to, obviously, you know, a lot of discomfort. Um, and, you know, even an impacted bowel, that can be life-threatening. So on either end, on either extreme, you know, either end of the extreme spectrum, that could certainly be a serious issue. Um, and if it's just, you know, if it's the chronic bloating and things like that, it becomes really more of a quality of life issue, which I still think, you know, needs to be addressed because a lot of these people sort of resign themselves to it or they're embarrassed to say anything about it and, sure. or, or, you know, it just becomes normal. I mean, if you live with something for years, that becomes a normal part of your life. Um, or, you know, they are, they receive sort of the generic recommendation of increasing fiber or supplementing with probiotics. And those things can actually exacerbate gas mm -hmm. production. So, um, you know, I think it's something that needs to be treated with, with more, um, it, it's just a more of a nuanced issue than just saying, like, you know, take fiber at a supplement. Right, right. Do those in those elimination diets? Are you eventually focusing on trying to bring back foods that might have not initially been tolerated? Um, well, it's more about bringing in foods to see if they will be tolerated. So yeah. instead of like throwing a bunch, oh, take probiotics and digestive enzymes and these vitamins and minerals and things like that that will heal your gut, which is not a claim that should even be made. Mm -hmm. um, the idea is, okay, let's, let's eliminate these foods that have pretty consistently shown to cause gas and bloating and gastric upset. See how you feel for a few weeks. In, in most cases, especially with people who have irritable bowel syndrome, they do see a reduction in things like bloating and gas and gastric upset. And then um, it's just, you know, okay, pick, a, pick one food. <laughs> so it's time consuming. It's an investment. But you pick one food that you want to introduce. And then you monitor your symptoms for a few days. And if things are okay, you don't have any bloating or anything like that, well, that food wasn't an issue, and so you can keep that in, and then you move on to the next one. And then if you do see that you suddenly experience symptoms, then the food that you reintroduce is probably a trigger. Um, but the, the trick is, you know, keeping everything else consistent, which can be a challenge because, you know, maybe you, if, if you're eating food that you haven't prepared, you don't know exactly what the ingredients are, or even, you know, exercise can, can cause gastric upset, um, you know, even sleep disturbances and things like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that you touched on the uh, wait in a few days because people don't do the same thing every single day, and, you know, they're used to changing foods around, and I've gone through an elimination diet and just adding things slowly back, at, like, one at a time, and it's very tedious. If, if you can get through it, it's great, but it's exceptionally tedious, especially if you're not trying to mess around with supplements that might affect it and anything else. And then if training, like you said, training can exacerbate things sometimes, so um, it can be tough. Uh, but on the whole, world, I think, like we said before, we see that increased biodiversity is generally a good thing. Um, when we're taking probiotics, the research I've seen seems to indicate that once the probiotics are stopped, um, they're not often found in the gut anymore. Uh, is that so? You know, why is that? Why don't they stick around? And does that mean we have to just take the probiotics for life? Well, you know, it's really interesting now. There have there there are a couple new studies that have just come out on probiotic supplementation, and they're really the most invasive and insightful that I've seen so far. We can very easily in rodents, if you give them a probiotic supplementation, you can then, after sacrificing them, look at exactly what's going on in the gut. But like I mentioned with humans, that's not so easy. And so what we usually rely on in, in you know, nine times out of 10, um, we're looking at fecal samples in human participants who are taking probiotics. So we make a couple of, of, of assumptions there. One, we assume that those probiotics are taking up residence in the large intestine, which is where we really want them, especially those bifidobacterium. And we also assume that they're well, they're, they're taking up residence at all. We, we assume that because we see them being, that they're present in feces, that they're then going to be present in the gut. Um, but that looks like that's actually not the case. So um, in a couple of studies that have come out um, from, from overlapping um, researchers, they actually found that uh, it's likely that individuals may be resistant to probiotics. And then some may be permissive to probiotics. 
with no change in probiotic shedding in the feces. So that means you, you, whether or not you are going to be enriched by those probiotics, you will be shedding them in your feces in the same amount. So oh, wow. you're, yeah, so we assume seeing them in the feces that they're, they're enriching the gut and that may not actually be the case. Um, and it also, and, and just like people can be more, more receptive or not to probiotic enrichment, kind of the, the lasting effects on the gut vary as well. Um, one thing that I used to recommend was to take a probiotic um, while or after taking an antibiotic because antibiotics can certainly, um, you know, reduce uh, diversity and have a lasting effect on the gut as well. Um, but uh, once again, you know, when I see really solid evidence, I tend to change my mind. And this was really solid, in my opinion, because not only did they look at, you know, what was going on in the feces, they actually did take samples from the lumen and the mucosa throughout the digestive tract of these participants. Oh, wow. Yeah. So from, from stomach all the way to rectum, they looked at what was going on. And they found that probiotic supplementation, even though those probiotics enriched the gut, um, it was a little bit easier after the antibiotics had, you know, kind of wiped things out. Um, that the people who were taking the probiotics actually did not return to their native microbiome even months afterwards. And so they actually experienced, you know, when we think of dysbiosis, we often think about an overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria, but that's mm -hmm. not necessarily the case. Dysbiosis can also be just a loss of the beneficial bacteria. We can also interpret it as just a reduction in, in diversity. So these people had high levels of those beneficial probiotic strains, um, but then that was about it. So their native right. biome didn't return. They found better, uh, a, a more rapid return in people who either had an autologous um, fecal transplant, so they ingested their own fecal transplant, or people who just just mm -hmm. went back to doing their normal things, just wash away, you know. So. Um, but it depends on what your native biome was. So, you know, if we're looking at healthy people, we want them to return back to their normal biome after an antibiotic uh, dose. If we're looking at people who have an inflammatory bowel disease, we don't necessarily need them to return to their native biome. So um, it's just, you know, it's, it's one study, um, or two studies rather, but I think that it really, and then there was a third one, I forgot to mention this, that a lot of people talked about, but it was um, uh, associating SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, with yeah. probiotic supplementation. And um, it was, it, it kind of illustrated that perhaps the, even though they, they well, they did, they did take samples, but, you know, we haven't looked at this in really other probiotic studies, but perhaps these probiotic bacteria were taking up residence then in the small intestine instead, and that's not really where we need them to be. Right. Um, so, so probiotic supplementation, um, you know, I, and I've said this since the beginning, that isn't necessarily like the best option for every person, you, especially, you know, I think it's sort of, Strange to recommend that for a person who may have dysbiosis related to, to too many quote-unquote beneficial bacteria. We don't necessarily need to be adding more. Um, and, and instead, you know, making um, changes through, through diet. Um, but you're right that it looks like it is pretty transient. And so we see enrichment of probiotic strains while we're ingesting probiotics. And then afterwards, things pretty much go back to normal. And that's really what we see, you know, with diet as well. We see changes associated with diet. And when the diet changes, so does the biome. And that can happen in as little as 24 hours. So those, right. those, those bacteria, because they're, you know, competing for, for space and nutrients and whatnot, we don't often look at um, the interaction between those bacteria themselves. We look at, you know, what's the interaction between diet and the, and the biome, or exercise in the biome, or obesity in the biome. But we also, it's important to look at, you know, how are these um, bacteria affecting one another? Like, do we see an inverse correlation between certain strains and others as they outcompete each other? So, right. So you said. Um... You used to recommend probiotics after antibiotics, but now, so basically you're just saying go to a healthy diet is the best recommendation after a course of antibiotics? 
Yeah, now I would say, you know, it, it may be better if you were a healthy person before, um, you know, and you just took antibiotics because you had, you know, some bronchial infection or something like that. You were right. treating a, a, a bacterial infection with antibiotics, but you were, you know, a healthy person before and you eat a nutritious diet and you exercise, it's probably fine to just go back to what you were doing before and your biome will recover. Um, and, you know, if that's not the case, then maybe it's it's warranted. But once again, um, you know, it's hard to say, like, where they're going to end up. Are you really going to be enriched in them, uh, enriched by them? You know, and, and it's there's there's not really a way to tell because it seems like the way that we, you know, some of the correlates that they found with people who were who were receptive or permissive um, were pretty much all uh, genes being expressed in the cecum, so it's sort of where the small intestine and the large intestine meet. It's like yeah. a little pothole. Things get stuck in there, and, <laughs> and bacteria develop and grow from there. And you know, we can't really just go in and check everyone's cecum and see what genes are being expressed there. Um, right. And the other thing is, you know, that the you know not all probiotics are going to be created equally. You have to make sure that you're looking for one that has you know a USP label for. Um, uh, for purity, um, USP, NSF, um, GMP, these are all third, like third-party labels that indicate, yes, this product uh, contains what it says it contains. Um, and, you know, so that's another thing to think about, that it's going to be a monetary investment and, and there has to be good justification for using it and that even if you do use it, you know, once you stop using it, those probiotic strains likely will not be um, continuously enriched in your gut. Have you seen, I mean, have you actually noticed either in yourself or people you work with significant benefits from taking probiotics? Because it, it seems to be a huge range. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've taken, and we can talk about the VSL-3 in a bit, um, but I've taken that many times. I never noticed anything. I've taken over-counter, and I've actually made my own um, yogurt several oh, cool. times. Yeah. I've tried it with regular milk and goat's milk, um, and every time I either notice nothing or a worsening of symptoms. So I, unfortunately, while I love the concept, I just, I haven't responded well at all. Yeah. You know, I have not um, taken probiotics for many, many years. I did when, you know, my, my doctoral studies that was, um, we used VSL-3 and I thought, you know, based on what we had seen in rodents and in humans then for IBS, I thought maybe it would be beneficial because I was diagnosed with IBS um, back when I was in grad school early. Um, and it was really, you know, it, it could have been IBS, but it could have also been that I was an endurance athlete at the time. Mm-hmm. And endurance exercise itself can cause severe gastric upset, especially when you're not um, fueling properly, which I wasn't at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I did try to take probiotics back then, and I actually found the same. I actually experienced just more bloating um, and more gas, and so I thought, well, this doesn't really seem to be helping anything. Yeah. Um, and I find that you know, I've done the same thing. I've done elimination diets as well, and I've been able to identify a few of the foods that seem to cause me the most gastric upset, and I just don't eat those, and that has been of huge benefit. I mean, that, that I can tell, like, if asparagus and spinach, those are what I had mentioned earlier, because, like, those mm-hmm. are two foods I know that I cannot digest. Yeah. And so I just avoid those, and I don't have to buy anything, you know? Yeah. Um, That's funny, because those are the two that I have found that I do tolerate. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So. Well, you're lucky. <laughs> I do. I, like, I miss asparagus and spinach. I, I love salads, so now I've got to go... I. Like, it seems that iceberg isn't so bad, so, you know, everyone hates on it, but, hey, I I like salad. Um, But, you know, I haven't had too many clients come to me on probiotics already, just a few, Um, and they said that, that, you know, they hadn't really noticed any benefit, and and Mm. when I recommended, okay, well, let's stop the supplements for now and just focus on, you know, eliminating foods first. They they felt fine just you know going on that baseline low FODMAP diet and and not having probiotics, um, but you know based on the literature it does look like they're beneficial for reducing symptoms especially of IBS in yeah. terms of you know chronic constipation or diarrhea, um, so it may be beneficial in that respect for you know 
self-reported uh, markers of, of gastric upset. Sure. Uh, yeah, it, like I said, it seems to be a huge variability there. Um, I'm like in a Facebook group, and a lot of people are making their own yogurt and stuff like that too. And um, some people swear by it. They say it was like the thing that you know got them over the hump, and now they're feeling great. Uh, I don't know what. It would be interesting if we could find out why we respond one way versus another and see like you know who responds best. But I don't think that's we're there yet. Yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, some people like that study had shown some people are receptive and some people are not. So perhaps there are people who are being enriched. And I think it also depends on whether um, your issues are due to an increase in, in pathogenic or harmful bacteria or a decrease in the beneficial bacteria. Mm. Um, because we don't have one specific profile for dysbiosis. Um, we know that it's, you know, it's like the wrong numbers of bacteria, <laughs> relatively speaking. Right. Um, you know, because we need to have a balance. We need to have some pathogenic bacteria. The biome educates and and helps to mature our immune system. So you know, we need to have like the balance of good and evil. Um, but you know, if something happens in your life or with your diet that knocks that you know, to skew it in one way or another where you're killing off the beneficial or having an overgrowth of the pathogenic, that's where you would really have issues. So if you are enriching, you know, if you had a lack of beneficial and maybe the probiotics are helping, then, you know, that, that might be, that might explain why a person could have, you know, better effect, better benefits than others, just like people react differently to um, drugs because they're, they're metabolized, you know, partially in by, by those back bacteria. And so that can even right. um, predispose us to, you know, whether or not we're going to respond to an actual pharmaceutical treatment. Have you seen literature suggesting um, probiotic benefits for IBD? Because most of what I've seen has been in IBS, not mm -hmm. too much in IBD. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it does seem to have, it does seem to help, um, once again, more with, uh, it, it may reduce markers of inflammation, so that's one thing. And then in sort of just symptom severity and, you know, the number of flare-ups. So they do seem to be beneficial for whether we're talking about irritable bowel syndrome or an inflammatory bowel disease. Um, mostly, and, and, and looking at really more of the um, multi-strain probiotics. So it looks like the most effective probiotics we find, like VSL is an example, they have multiple mm -hmm. strains. They're extremely potent, um, and and so that is a there's a greater chance there of enrichment because when you think about it, we're looking at hundreds of trillions of bacteria in the gut. Right. So if you take you know one million acidophilus, that's right, going to right. be like a drop in the ocean. So um, that's what I've seen thus far that you know we need to it, it needs to be sufficiently dosed, and um, those are usually kind of the expensive ones too right but right. you know i think if that's something that you want to experiment with it's worth making the investment in in you know the really high quality um probiotics that are uh, at least you know most of them are much higher than this but more than a billion colony forming units but most of them are you know 10 or 50 i mean they've, they've gotten yeah. more potent in recent years yeah, I mean, if anybody is interested in making their own, I, I mean, I don't know if you've looked into this at all, but there's some places you can just get, like, just nothing except the probiotics themselves. I used custom probiotics, and uh, you just use a very, very small amount, but you use that as, like, a culture starter, um, and then that will make a whole thing of, you know, yogurt probably, like, this big, which has billions and billions of bacteria there. So it's certainly, it's kind of a pain in the ass to make it, but, <laughs> yeah. but it'll, it'll save money in the long run. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you talked about, you know, a few times the endurance athletes having some gut issues there. Um, and that is something, because I've had people tell me one is a cyclist, another person is a distance runner. Um, and when I first heard about it being a problem, I was like, no, you know, exercise is great and it causes, you know, an overall decrease in inflammation, like long term. Um, but it seems to be the case that that can happen. So why is that? Oh, yeah. You know, and... There are, I, it was funny, I even did a kind of just a little survey on um, Instagram because I read that, uh, you know, even up to 90% of endurance athletes, um, especially, but up to about 60% of any type of athlete has experienced some form of gastric upset. And I got about that number on Instagram, my, my survey of 300 Instagrammers. But yeah, about 60% <laughs> of them said that they'd experienced some gastric upset. 
um, seems to be more prevalent in endurance athletes and females, um, and especially is associated with um, heat uh, or, mm. or psychological stress. So even if um, we're looking at people who may not be athletes but um, are, you know, uh, doing like a military exercise, um, they can experience increased gut permeability uh, even without the, the um, you know, athletic side of things. It's just being highly physically active in a really stressful environment seems to increase gut permeability. So there are a few different theories as to why that is. There's there's obviously mechanical um, trauma that's occurring in the gut, so there's a lot of jostling right. going on. Um, exercise increases or speeds transit time, so um, the the foodstuffs are moving very rapidly through the intestines, um, which is obviously going to be increasing friction and then decreasing the time that that bacteria have with those nutrients. Um, then you also have shunting of blood flow away from the intestines into the skeletal muscle, to the working muscle. And so we have reduced blood flow and reduced oxygen availability. And so that just kind of changes the, the metabolic environment for those bacteria. So some bacteria, well, all bacteria can um, readily ferment, you know, carbohydrates that or they can, they can ferment in an anaerobic environment. That's fine. Um, and then some of them are, are facultative anaerobes, so they can do things with oxygen as well, and so they can flip back and forth. Um, but, you know, you could, by changing both oxygen availability and pH, be supporting the growth of specific bacteria over others that may not be as, as happy in an acidic environment. Um, and we see that even as we're going from stomach to the large intestine, both diversity and overall numbers of bacteria increase because we have decreased acidity. So those are some of the theories behind why we might see um, some gastric upset, uh, because basically, you know, we're, we have lack of blood flow there, we have um, lack of oxygen. Uh, we we do see that there there aren't so much uh, from there's very limited literature I'll say on, on about this too. Yeah. Um, but looking at like the acute effects of exercise, it looks like we don't see so much a change in the bacteria themselves, but perhaps a change in in their function and their gene mm. expression. Um, so it looks like they they don't focus so much on energy production for themselves, um, but flagellar assembly and hemotaxis. So I almost envision them like, are they trying to like hang on? <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, right. everything's moving around so much. You know, hang on and 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 try to hold on for dear life. Um, but there's just so there's just not a lot known about that. Um, and, you know, once again, we're looking at the, the feces of these individuals rather than what's going on actually in the gut. Right. Um, so uh, so those things can all change um, the the environment inside the gut. And then but but you are right that over time, um, when we look at, you know, the chronic effects of exercise, that yeah, we do see decreased. Uh, markers of inflammation, and we see overall an, an increase in um, uh, diversity in the gut, and we see an increase. Really, what I'm seeing, I, I've been looking for trends because you know there we we're so different in how we're studying these uh, bacteria, but I'm trying to find what's common between a lot of these studies, and it looks like it's the increase in butyrate producers. So butyrate is a short chain fatty acid that's produced via fermentation of fiber. Um, and that's very beneficial for gut health and may actually be um, helpful in increasing insulin sensitivity as well. And now, that being said, it's not necessarily just a factor of exercise. It could be also a dietary thing, too, because most endurance athletes are eating a diet that's high in carbohydrate and high in fiber intake. So right. it's very, it's, it's hard to parse out, you know, the effect of exercise alone versus the effect of exercise versus diet. And once again, like I said, there are so few studies on this, and yeah. everything really has been done in endurance athletes. So we've got um, some a uh, couple studies that were done in um, um, uh, the rugby players. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. Um, cyclists and uh, so amateur marathoners. There have been a couple that have looked at um, just just healthy people who are sedentary, but but stratifying them by cardiovascular fitness level and then looking at how um, that is related to diversity. So it does look like there's a link between cardiovascular fitness and, and diversity. Um, 
but you know it's sort of a chicken egg thing you know, right was were you do you have better cardiovascular fitness you know because of your diversity or vice versa now in resistance training there's nothing really <laughs> i've been able to find two studies and if people have other studies please send them to me because i'm having a hard time finding stuff um but it just doesn't look like it's really an area that's been explored yet um and what again, did they find this was uh in so they there was a study done on overweight and obese women who did curves which is uh it's kind of an old it's i don't know if it's even around anymore but it was an interval style resistance training um mm. program and um they found that they had reduced endotoxin levels but they didn't have any actual they didn't measure the, the microbiome specifically now these okay. women also lost weight and so right. it could be a factor of weight there was another study that used both resistance training and um aerobic uh exercise training as well and i want to say that they they did it was a three time per week um intervention and um they didn't they, they, we couldn't parse out what was the effect of aerobic exercise versus resistance training. Um, those people also lost some weight, and they also were supplemented with um, whey protein. So there were mm. a lot of variables going on, and they found no change in the fecal biome. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, it also depends on sort of the sensitivity of the test that you're using, and and how many. Um, samples you take and how deeply you sequence that um, to identify, you know, who's there. That being said, they just looked at, you know, changes in in the profile of what bacteria would be present. They didn't necessarily look at they didn't look at changes in function. Sometimes, and there was a really interesting study. Something that doesn't get um, talked a lot about in the um, cyclist study was that they actually found increased activity. Of a, sparse, of a specific archaea. So archaea is they're a different group from bacteria. They're kind of similar to bacteria, but um, this organism uh, consumed hydrogen. It produces methane, and that can actually help increase the efficiency of fermentation in the gut. And so even though 99% of what's, of what's in our gut are bacteria, so there are very low levels of other things, of things like viruses and archaea, the activity of those organisms can be very high. And so it's important to look at not just who's there, but what they're doing. Because you can have bacteria that may be at fairly low levels, but their, um, their, their transcriptive, uh, the, the transcription of their genes into proteins actually doing something can be extremely high. And so you can see functional changes without profile changes. So where I mentioned, you know, that we don't see an acute change, well, this was a study done in marathoners, and they studied the um, profile, who's there, before and after a race, and really didn't find any changes. And from there, we could say, oh, well, acute exercise has no effect on the gut. But we actually found that there was a functional change there. And so functional changes may actually be, you know, something more, even more important to look at than just who's there. We need to know what the gut is actually doing rather than just who's living in it. Because, sure. you know, we have back when I when this when this research was still sort of um, emerging the, in the olden days, <laughs> I don't know now it's like, gosh, almost 10 years ago. I'm so old. Um, but <laughs> when I was, you know, just starting to study this in grad school, they characterized an obesogenic microbiome as one that was high in permithides. And so they would say too many permithides and too few bacteroidetes, that's the problem. Well, the Firmicutes groups contains a lot of beneficial bacteria. Lactobacillus is part of the Firmicutes group. So comparing the Firmicutes to a bacteroidetes is sort of like saying vertebrates compared to invertebrates. Yeah. You know, if you were an alien looking at Earth and you said vertebrates seem to be contributing to pollution on that planet more so than invertebrates, that does not tell you really much of anything. I mean, like right. vertebrates. You mean your your house cat? Um, you know, like so. So that was so general, but that's really what the the body of literature said. And now, because we've had so many rapid developments, how how sensitively I and mean, how specifically we can identify bacteria, we know that you know that ratio. Even though it's something that people still use as a metric, yeah. that's really not telling us the whole story. And now, seeing that, even looking at 
specific strains of bacteria. You know, now we can get as specific as the species level, even though there's not really technically a bacterial species definition, but we can get very specific and see who's there. We also need to see what they're doing. And also, you know, realizing that because we get so, so much data out of the gut, I mean, we're looking at thousands of species. Sometimes we have to remove these species that are really low in abundance and assume that they are not playing an important role because they're so low in abundance. Um, but that may not be the case. We may actually just be overlooking things. Mm. So even though, you know, we see a few of the, these similar names in these exercise studies, Prevotella was big, Acromansia, Rosaria, these names come up a lot, but it doesn't mean that there aren't other microbes out there that could be really beneficial and important. We just haven't seen them yet. And so this, this area of research is absolutely still like in its early infancy. And um, I think then, you know, if I have the opportunity to get back into, um, you know, doing more research and academia or collaborating, I think the area of re resistance training in the microbiome absolutely needs more. Yeah. We just don't know. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, I actually noticed, and I'm, I'm, my theory is because it kind of directed blood flow away from the gut, but I noticed when I was feeling my worst probably, and I was having like really bad cramps numerous times a day, mm. one of the only times that that didn't happen was when I was working out. Yeah. And I, I, my thought was maybe, you know, lack of peristalsis and everything because the blood flows away. That, that's the only thing I could really think of. Yeah, and you know, we do see differences too in, it's sort of like a dose response, more intense exercise is going to likely cause more issues, like like um, triathletes, people who are exercising intensely for long periods of time will actually see increased gut permeability, um, whereas if we're looking at people who are doing just, you know, lower levels of exercise, less than 60% VO2 max doesn't seem to cause um, those same changes in the gut. And if we compare mice who are voluntary wheel runners versus mice who are on a forced treadmill running, mm -hmm. um, usually the voluntary wheel runners seem to reap more benefits than, in some cases, than the forced treadmill running. That mm -hmm. being said, you know, forced treadmill running for a mouse is arguably probably more stressful than forced treadmill running for a human. Right, right. <laughs> you know, because they don't know what's going on, and they're like, this giant hand keeps touching me. Um, but, you know, just something to think about, that there's definitely a, a dose-dependent response, um, you know, and, and we're really in the midst of sort of this push for, like, more is better and work out until you barf and stuff like that. You know, that's not right. the case. More is just more, and it's important to, to properly periodize your training. So for people who are having some gut issues, at, at this point, I guess the main recommendation is just don't do a ton of endurance exercise as far I mean... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to say, like, you have, if, if someone is really, like, in love with doing triathlons and things like that, it's not so much that, you know, you have to stop, but um, ensuring that you're properly hydrated and that your carbohydrate beverage, because this actually has been shown to um, help reduce, you know, markers of inflammation and, and gut permeability, but, um, you know, taking in a proper concentration of carbohydrates, so going for that 6 to 8% concentration of carbs, uh, there are not a lot of studies on probiotic interventions, um, but in the couple that I've seen, it looks like chronic, meaning, you know, a week <laughs> as far as the study mm. goes, um, but chronic supplementation may reduce markers of intestinal permeability. Um, but really what we know, what we've seen more often is not so much intervention, it's just we test people, you know, after they do something strenuous and find that they have increased um, levels of of uh, lipopolysaccharides. Um, but, you know, just like during an endurance exercise, you're also going to have increased production of free radicals. And that doesn't mean that these people are necessarily at increased risk of, of uh, cancers and things like that, like we see in people who have increased free radical production from obesity or overeating. In right. response to the increased free radical production, in, in response to the oxidative stress, they're um, uh, uh, antioxidant systems are enriched. And so, you know, just like we can, we can detoxify LPS. Like our, our liver is, you know, oh, the one secret doctors don't want you to know, having a liver, you know, you don't right. need detox because you need to <laughs> process those things. So, you know, the presence of elevated LPS in a person who is extremely physically fit doesn't necessarily indicate a problem, but it does correlate 
strongly with the presence of gastric upset. So it, more often the people who experience really significant gastric upset or need some sort of medical intervention um, usually also have higher circulating um, endotoxin levels as well. Awesome. So yeah, just, you know, rest properly, properly nutrition, uh, proper nutrition and fueling, those mm -hmm. seem to be the biggest things. Okay, cool. And um, as far as, in, I guess, enhancing our microbiome as much as possible, if you know, if possible, what are some of the things that we can eat to try to do that to maybe give us a better defense when these inevitable stressful situations arise in life? Mm -hmm. um, well, some of the strongest correlates with these beneficial um, butyrate producers appear to be, and I've stressed this so many times, fiber yeah. <laughs> and, and, and carbohydrate content in the diet. Um, protein also also seems to dictate um, a pretty strongly a different type of beta diversity, which is basically when we look at you know two two different people's biomes and how they're how how similar or how different are they, um, protein intake can also dictate uh, your diversity compared to another person. So if your diet is, dietary protein and carbohydrate intake are very different, and really fat intake as well. So, so macronutrient content of the diet will have an effect on um, the diversity of your microbiome. Generally speaking, if you have a really high protein diet, you probably will have higher levels of bacteroides, their mucin integrators, um, and that has been linked to a, a you know, increased risk of the production of some harmful metabolites and perhaps a reduction in the mucus layer of the intestine. That being said, a high-protein diet has been linked to tons of health benefits and improvements in body composition. So I think that probably the biggest um, factor that would be most beneficial and protective would be, regardless of how you want the rest of your diet to look, ensuring that you're getting sufficient fiber, um, I think would be the biggest benefit. Um, and, and so for, for women, that's about 25 grams a day. For men, that's about 38 grams per day. Or you're going for about 14 grams per thousand calories that you're eating. Um, the ceiling to fiber, because, of course, you can have too much of anything, looks like it's about 70 grams per day. And at that point, you're probably um, going to have more gastric upset. It's not going to benefit you anymore. And, um, you know, you, you do need to make sure that you're not... Um, you know, promoting the growth of just like one specific strain of bacteria either. You know, we need to make sure that there is a, a, a balance there. And so because a varied diet, you know, will, will support a diverse bacteria, have a, a varied diet. Um, so whether, you know, if you want to be vegetarian, vegan, ketogenic, whatever, you can do that in prudent ways. I would say that you know, doing something like the carnivore diet um, probably would be the one of the least prudent things you could do. <laughs> um, you know, eliminating any entire food group is probably not going to be the best. So, yeah, um, yeah so plenty of vegetables and fruit and, and whole grains. I mean, these aren't groundbreaking things. It's just, you know, usually what we see when we look at large-scale studies and we're finding these correlations you know, westernized diet has been associated with reduced diversity, whereas we look at more of an agrarian diet that's high in, in complex carbohydrates, there's greater, greater diversity there. So um, uh, plant-centric is, is usually what I promote. Um, and then, you know, based on what we consider to be a high-fat diet, it's probably prudent to, and this goes along with, um, you know, the American Heart Association recommendations, eating a diet that's less than 40%. Um, calories from fat, and specifically, really the recommendation is to limit it to 30 to 35 percent of your calories coming from fat. And then certainly if you want to include, you know, probiotic-containing um, foods, that's probably, uh, you know, you're not going to get as much of a load of probiotics as you would from taking a probiotic supplement. So eating fermented foods would be another way, um, you know, to, to support the health of your gut. Uh, and then if you do end up having to take um, a, a, an antibiotic because that's, you know, that happens, you have an infection or it can be something that you do, you know, as a preventative mechanism to complete the, the whole um, series of antibiotics. Don't stop early because you're feeling better or something like that. Um, go ahead and take them all the way through. And then, you know, if you're a healthy person, go back to the healthy things that you were doing before. 
if we are if we abuse antibiotics, that really is what leads to um, you know the development of antibiotic resistant um, right. bacteria, and that can be really problematic. So um, and then you know like I had mentioned with with exercise, there's a dose dependent response there. So making sure that you're periodizing exercise properly, and you're not running yourself into the ground and just chasing volume and you know more for the sake of more. Do it in a in, in a planned way and and really. Um, prioritize recovery and try to reduce your stress levels as well. Gotcha. Um, yeah, actually, there's some interesting new research on the antibiotic prescriptions. Um, mm -hmm. I know when I was originally learning how to prescribe, and um, like you said, it was always make sure they take all of it and, you know, the, this amount of time. And I've seen, actually, that's being questioned a little bit now. Um, oh, depending really? on Yeah, depending on the reason that it's being okay. prescribed. Um, like if I'm just doing like a basic procedure, it, it used to be full week of amoxicillin and now we're talking about maybe like three or four days. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, like I said, newer research, but uh, on the whole, yeah, I would agree. Uh, whatever your doctor is telling you, just complete the course. <laughs> exactly. That's what I stress. Just do what your doctor tells you. If your doctor yeah. tells you to do fewer days, do fewer days. But yeah, um, you know, the, the idea that it, it like we, we really stress that, you know, the, or folks will really stress that it's like, oh, well, you're overusing them in agriculture and things like that. And that could be an issue, but there's certainly also the issue of, you know, people not not using their antibiotics properly. Um, sure. Or, you know, or it's like there's two camps of, I guess, you know, we're using them too much. And, and then people who, you know, want to go and like roll in dirt and things like that and eat dirt. <laughs> so any extreme probably, you know, isn't isn't the best. Um, and if people are curious about whether, you know, you want to be eating dirt and things like that, there is a different environmental biome than there is to the gut biome. And so there is a thing now, this is a trend of like, you know, wanting to eat dirt related microbes. Hmm. Um, and certainly exposure to the environment, animals and things like that um, for, at an early age, that's beneficial. It looks like it reduces the risk of developing um, um, allergies later in life. But um, consuming dirt-related microbes won't necessarily benefit your gut because we have a specific human gut microbiome that is different from our skin biome and our vaginal biome and our oral biome. So um, not all microbes need to ingested okay awesome um so i'm just like looking at the list of topics that i wanted to discuss with you and i think we could easily double our time here so <laughs> so maybe we'll stop here um okay. and hopefully we can get you back on for part two yeah i've um, got a few different things we want to discuss so i know you're uh, you're writing a book or maybe it's, it's coming out i don't know mm -hmm. when could you go into that a little bit yeah so i've written a section for the upcoming rp diet book 2.0 um, and that's going to be coming out at the end of this year. And then next year, I will be writing really a big RP gut health book. And okay. so it's not necessarily going to be like a, a just a diet book. Um, I'm going to find really as much, you know, and communicate as much of the literature as I possibly can on multiple body systems. Because we know that the microbiome plays a role in mental health, reproductive health, metabolic health, gut health. Um, really runs the gamut. So um, that's going to be my goal next year. So, you know, writing always takes longer than you think it's going to. Um, and I'll be looking to take my RD exam and whatnot early next year, too. Okay. So I'm hoping that that book is going to be out, you know, by the end of next year, um, maybe beginning of 2020. Uh, but yeah, so that those are going to be things to look out for. And in the meantime, I mean, I'll be at um, seminars, this one coming up, Next weekend, um, Juggernaut Performance Seminar in um, Newport Beach in California. And we just announced um, a seminar in Australia next year. Nice. So, yeah, that's going to be really incredible. Um, and that will be in June um, 2019. So, yeah, lots of stuff coming up. Very cool. Yeah, I think you picked pretty much the perfect time to go into this field because gut health, as you obviously know, is blown up so much in the last few years. So everybody's going to be seeking you out. Yeah, and that's great. I'm here to dispel myths, hopefully, and answer questions, maybe burst some bubbles. <laughs> so uh, where else can people find you? You're Vitamin PhD on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Anywhere yeah. else? 
Yep, I'm Vitamin PhD on Facebook as well. Okay. Um, I also have VitaminPhDNutrition.com. It is just, it's mostly just a blog, and I post like any um, uh, seminars and uh, podcasts and whatnot. I post the links up there. I don't update the blog as often as I should, um, <laughs> but every couple of months, you know, if I have something that's noteworthy there. And then um, Facebook, I, you know, link my Instagram to. And if they want to email me, they can email me at Gabrielle at RenaissancePeriodization.com. Um, and then if they want to go online and look at my website, they can contact me there as well. So um, I respond to Instagram messages. I really like it when people reach out there. So I try to be you know, as in touch with everyone as possible. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking today. Thank you so much. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in for the interview with Dr. Gabrielle Fundero. This is definitely a favorite topic of mine, so I'm already looking forward to having her on for a part two. And if you like the Fur Kids charity that we mentioned earlier today, please feel free to make your own donation.